Eleanor without a bar. Welcome to Three PNR. I'm your host Adam, and joining me is Detective Jason White and Leslie Gillieri. How are you guys doing? Good, really good. So you know, up front tonight's episode, it's going to be based on the Zodiac Killer. Uh, we'll talk about other things, obviously, and then future ideas um, to give people a little context. So that when they're listening, uh, Jason White is an active homicide detective. So he has, uh, you know cases and a, and a job to report to every day on top of which he teaches uh his schedule is slammed so J- jason if you want to expand on that a little bit yeah i mean uh, listen i i love talking about murder and 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 we've had a little bit of a break in the action in part probably because of the summertime and i know adam had a lot of stuff going on and 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 that's somewhat of a busy time of the year for us as well so between all of our schedules, that's kind of one of the reasons that we've kind of delayed up to this point. Uh, we've had a blast so far, and I think this has been a ton of fun. But there are times when scheduling things where I've had to catch a murder or something like that where uh, I haven't been able to be available, et cetera. I, I will tell you this just for the listeners because I've noticed, you know, we read all of your all of your comments and stuff, and I love to read the feedback. And so far, it's been it's been really, really fun to read. Uh, some of the some of it's been constructive and and for that also we appreciate that that as well because i mean that's part of it but i have to remind the people that listen just just briefly that we don't have this is just us sitting around talking about really interesting cases to us that that we feel would be an interesting topic to kind of revisit so to speak and to talk about kind of different things that are out there that may not have been used previously. So keep that in mind. We don't have the volumes that goes into these cases. Uh, there's guys that work these cases that I can promise you do not know all the inner workings of that specific case. And I'm talking about the leads of those cases. Okay. It's very, there's a tremendous amount of, of information, thousands upon thousands and several volumes of books that go into these cases, all of which, by the way, we are not privy to. So we are going off of stuff that's, that's available to anybody else out there on the internet or, or whatever documentaries, docuseries, et cetera. So that's kind of it. I just wanted to at least mention that, that, I, I've read a couple of them like this guy doesn't know all there is to know about this case. Well, heck no, I don't know everything there is. I don't know everything there is to know about my cases. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, not everyone Certainly. knows. Like, not even the people directly involved know everything or else there no. wouldn't be a case. It'd be a, just a closed book. Yeah, of course. So, um, but it is fun to revisit these cases. And I've, I've had a really good time about it and I've learned a lot actually on the way. So it's and, good. And the idea of forming a panel is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're taking information and forming opinions based on what we learned, right? Uh, otherwise, I would be making calls. To, I wouldn't be on a podcast. I'd be calling the detective, and then someone would be incarcerated. <laughs> so Precisely. So that being said, we're diving into this uh, Zodiac case. Now, this is the one case, as, as, as grandiose as it is, as, as, as much coverage as it has, and all over the social media, there's still no definitive answer other than there's a... A laundry list of suspects, uh, Arthur Allen, Lawrence Kane, Richard Gorgowski. Uh, there's a Gary Post I just learned about. Uh, and then on and on. And even that Lawrence Kane, they they also know him as Lawrence K, uh, as in K-A-Y-E. Uh, so far, he looks good because a cabbie that had a uh, 
you know, a close call with the Zodiac. I did his picture and, and, you know, made a match by his voice. Uh, and, the, you know, Ar- the Arthur Kane or the Lawrence Kane guy, he's also trained in military codes. I mean, so, but then some of the other guys on the list also have code training, a couple of them, you know, mm-hmm. they're former Navy. So here's the big question. Uh, this is, we're going to open up with this. I, I'm looking at this. Jason, it's 1968. You get a phone call. You're hearing about the Zodiac killing. Uh, you know, there's a couple of the car there shot to death. One guy, you know, survives his death. Procedure for you, because this sounded to me a little bit sloppy, or, you know, poorly handled, I should say. Well, the world of homicide investigation in 1968 is not even remotely similar to the way it is today. Uh, back then, you got to remember that we did, they didn't have surveillance camera systems that they do today. They didn't have cell phone technology or cell phone towers that are everywhere. They didn't have the ability to test for DNA or things like that. As a matter of fact, they didn't even know that the packaging of evidence back then is completely different than it would be for today. If you were to take a glimpse back to 1968, I can promise you, if you were to look at crime scene photos, that you're going to see detectives walking around and handling things without even wearing gloves. I mean, that's just the way things went back then. So we've changed dramatically since. I mean, uh, and I'm not saying that it's made our job. I'm saying I'm not saying that it's not uh, our jobs aren't complicated. Complicated because they're overly complicated. Everybody that we deal with nowadays, they know that we look at cell phones. They know that we look at social media. They know all the things that we can do. So that's kind of where we're starting. Is that we're we're talking about a time here where they couldn't, they weren't going to be able to get DNA necessarily. What the, what they would be able to get is they would be able to literally get a blood type, maybe right. at, at the scene. And and aside from that, they're not going to be able to get DNA. Now, I will mention one thing about DNA that I think is worth mentioning is that. Uh, the discovery of that actually happened about the turn of the century, you know, 1900. So the physicians or scientists knew that that actually existed and that they were, but they didn't really know how to utilize that until really kind of the 50s where they started utilizing that for disease processes, things along that that nature. And then it was first used in the 80s, and that was for uh, a murder case. They actually, there was a guy in England that thought, why can't we use this for identification purposes in a murder trial? And that's what they used. And then, uh, you know, nowadays it's everybody, everybody that sits in a jury, they want to know where's the DNA. And, and they and they are questioning if we don't have DNA, then the guy must not have done it. It's kind of the CSI effect, so to speak. So that's kind of the difference of the time from back then. Furthermore, real quick, you know, the, the, these detectives and stuff, there was a little bit of a different method that they would use to interview people and uh, probably not necessarily the best way. I mean, now that you have cameras everywhere and we're, we're even watched by cameras. We're one of the few occupations on the planet that, uh, as a matter of fact, it's the only one that I know of where you're actually watched every everything you do is on videotape to some extent and so uh cops may have had a little bit of a different technique of interviewing people back then than they do today uh, <laughs> right. there's a there was just a different method to get to the truth or whatever so i'm not saying that they would they would handle witnesses or victims like that but but maybe uh, the potential suspect from time to time they were a little bit more firm with uh, than they are today, of course. So things are different. It's just a different world that we're living in. And and uh, that just kind of gives people just, and everybody knows that. Everybody that's listening to this, if you think that it's the same way back in 68 as it is today, then uh, 
you're kidding. And you've been living yeah. in a yeah, you're you're you've been living in a bubble, you know. I mean, we've, that's not that's not possible. This is demonstrated even in the O.J. Simpson case, which I covered with Norm Pardo. Uh, that was grossly mishandled, and that's 1994. Uh, it, yeah, even I, even as as early as or as late as the 90s, uh, you know, attorneys were uh, combating the DNA use. Uh, they were trying to have it thrown out. There was a lot of legislation behind it. It wasn't, you know, the era that you're currently working in is where we have the strength. Like, I would imagine it's hard to be a serial killer today, right? Because it's... Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll tell you this. I can guarantee you that there is a motherload of serial killers out there that are sweating it. Because yeah. now but, they have the ability, literally, to do forensic genealogy. And, and just to kind of give... I, don't, I can't remember what I've talked about previously. You could literally take DNA from a scene... And if you have a good enough strand, you could actually send it to a company. The one that comes to mind is Snapshot Parabon DNA. And you could send it to them with a check for like four or $5,000. And they will send you back a picture of what the individual looks like at 25 years old from that DNA. Okay. And I'm going to tell you right now, the, the, the composite that you're going to get back is right on the money. I mean, it is spooky, scary as to how close it looks like to the people. And if you want to, if you want some proof of that, go to their website, and they've got plenty of examples on their website to show you that uh, that the, how close it is to the person that they've gotten the DNA from, or the DNA the DNA is is how close it is. They can tell high color, hair color, facial characteristics, and it's at twenty five years old. Now, if the perpetrator happened to be thirty five or forty five when they committed the crime then that's fine. You can you can actually pay more money for that option. And you, know, you don't know how old the guy was at the time. Right. We go off of what witnesses state. And then secondly, I just want to mention this. From that, then what they'll do is they'll do some forensic genealogy search on that. And then that's where... Personally, I don't know. I don't know this for a fact, but I have I have this belief that that's probably how they identified the killer up in Idaho was off of familiar, basically doing some forensic genealogy off of DNA that they had recovered from the scene. When they did that, what they probably did is they they tracked down that it's this line, and then they start seeing well who's in that family and who lives in that area based on that, and that's when they found that it was probably him. And then of course they find out that the car that that guy drives, et cetera, et cetera. The most notable case with forensic genealogy that I'm aware of is the Golden State Killer, which he was a cop that was a uh, serial killer and serial rapist in the Sacramento area, and that's just the one that really stands out. But that's that's where we're at in that world, and and just to kind of mention, uh, that's how far we've gotten. And, and with the O.J. Simpson case, you just didn't have that. That that you know that was a t- we've we've went leaps and bounds since that case. Yeah, and you know, not for nothing in that particular case. There's a, I mean, if if you ever get around to listening to the episode I did with Norm Pardo, it there was a lot of uh, personal gain, personal interest in both law enforcement and people on the opposite side. I mean, there there was a lot of nonsense involved with that. Um, and, you know, that's the one case in a courtroom where they were calling forensics into question pretty often. Uh, you know, anywhere from the scene, you saw, there was uh, blood tracks that were from uh, police uh, shoes, I suppose. Crazy. So today's different. I mean, imagine, Jason, one day, maybe one day, I don't know. Like, you you remember the movie Minority Report? I haven't seen that. It's with Tom Cruise. It's basically to have a machine that could analyze the public and predict who predict crime. They could stop it before it happens somehow. 
Uh, and you know, ultimately in the movie, they find flaws in it, but the, the point is they were making arrests before, before a crime. Um, mm-hmm. when you look at today's technology and AI, I don't know, in the next decade, something along those lines might come, come about. It's creepy. Uh, in the, it instant, is creepy. Is this uh, with the Zodiac case? It, when we have the technology to revisit the past and if we could do that, where you like, uh, like kind of like that movie deja vu where you can look into this window of the past. Maybe that could be feasible, but even then, I, I think they'll be surprised. I think the Zodiac personally, uh, I think there was more than one person. I think there was an opportunist who saw us in the news, saw the ciphers, and so is the only way I could explain that only some of the ciphers could be unscrambled and some of them were just nonsensical. Uh, it was just somebody utilizing an opportunity. Uh, Leslie, what did you get from what you learned in Zodiac? What do you think? What is your opinion? Well, in reference to the DNA, I was pleased to know that even back in the late 60s, when they were utilizing DNA like we can now, that they were still making an attempt to preserve evidence so that later on, like they have done in the Zodiac case, they were able to take some of those pieces of evidence and and get DNA from them. So I, I thought that was uh, showing some foresight on their part um, to try to, you know, at least maintain somewhat of a integrity to those important cases. Um, so it could be retur- retrieved, but gosh, like you said, there's so much to it. It was, I remember when it was first in the paper and, and what caught my interest was, with Paul Stein and when he was murdered in his taxi and um, hadn't heard about the couples that had been attacked at that point, at least I hadn't. Um, And, and the crimes themselves seemed so random in terms of the victims, the time of day, the method of attack uh, in different jurisdictions um, to try to piece all that together uh, is pretty formidable. And then and then to try to get different jurisdictions to cooperate with information is a challenge too. For for some, you know, some of those reasons are um understandable than wanting to keep their information in-house, but it makes it difficult to approach um maybe a suspect that's out there that's wandering around in different jurisdictions. And I had um, watched uh, different uh, videos about this, and then all of a sudden pops up uh, a murder down in Riverside, California. So it's just su- one surprise after another, one complication after another, and then you throw the ciphers in there, and gosh, it's it's just a lot. So, I mean, just by what you said out loud, uh, put in your mind this. It, it sounds planned right this is uh they're not it's not the kills are not happening in the same jurisdictions there the ciphers are coming out some of the ciphers seem like they could be decoded other ones seem just nonsense uh some of the verbiage sent to the to the to the newspapers uh this individual not not only had a plan but he was enjoying himself and jason could tell you uh, copycats there's no shortage there's none uh, opportunists are even worse because now you got a guy who's killing and then there's, I mean, there's, there's even the idea. And I've read this on a Reddit page where he was working in concert with others. 
Uh, this was a, a group effort, which terrifies me to hear that. <laughs> but there's there's these weird realities we have to live in, right? Um, but for you, I, I guess I'll ask this. You have a creative mind. You're a writer, right? Um, if you were going to write a fiction story on this, what would the angle be? Like, how would you put it? I'm not sure how to take all those different com- components and put it in one. Um, it seems to me that it could very easily be more than one uh, one killer out there capitalizing on the methods of someone else. The Zodiac himself, who insisted initially on being publicized and got what he wanted, got the attention he wanted, um, was no doubt thriving on terrorizing the community. And the more people that knew that he was out there, the more he could terrorize um, the public and confound the law enforcement officers that were out there trying to figure out who he was. So I, I don't know, just, uh, um, and it was very confusing about the ciphers because to me, uh, they are a big puzzle and, um, I don't know, maybe Jason has a view about the judgment call in in uh, publicizing those articles. I don't know if there'd be a different view on it now than there was at that time when um, when the criminal insists on having something put on the paper. Is that uh, is that? Yeah, Jason, a, what do you what do you think here? Let, let's ask this. Are these ciphers a distraction or are they just really that good? Well, I, I, I think that in some instances they're really that good because they there there have been two or three of these things that have actually been broke. So mm-hmm. it, but it took a tremendous amount to get to a point where they've been able to crack them. So I, I have no doubt in my mind. They've had some of the world's the world renowned code crackers try to break these things and it's taken years in decades to get to a point where they were able to decipher them so i i I completely agree with you that i think that there's a claim that maybe he's involved in i I think the numbers what was it 37 homicides or somewhere close to that 37 now I, I will say this. I, I don't think that he's responsible for all of them. I, I think that there's probably different people that are responsible for various murders or there's those that they think that he may be responsible for. They don't have 37 of these that are linked via DNA or they might have some of them that have links such as that. But they don't. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind there's going to be different killers to some extent here. OK, the number one thing is that the other thing is, is that I think that what you run into with challenges with a killing, a killing type person such as this and i'm certainly not not somebody that i would consider an expert when it comes to serial killers but here's the thing murder what makes these complicated is if the killer doesn't have a connection to the victim and and the other thing that i would say and you said something about this adam that that there's been speculation that maybe he operated with other people i would find that very very hard to believe just because People cannot keep their mouths shut. And when you have, there's some of the most successful serial killers out there. And the one that comes to mind is Pee Wee Gaskins, who a lot of people don't even know who that is. And that's a guy that he even wrote a book about his killing escapades. And he talks about how stupid he was by, by letting somebody else know something about one of the murders. Right. 
you can when people do stuff like this and they don't have a connection with somebody then and especially when we talk about the time frame when this happens back in 1968 with no video cameras no cell phone towers no we're tracked everywhere now really there's a footprint of us an electronic footprint almost everywhere so and it, but you have to find where that is. you have to find that that's what makes this job interesting and difficult but i I, I don't think that the ciphers, to answer your question in a short way, I don't think that uh, I don't think they were all prepared by him. No, I don't. But uh, that would be something I would be interested to know from the handwriting ex- uh, experts. Well, I think that they that they did find some that they, they did a lot of handwriting work on a lot of these possible suspects. They had hundreds of suspects in this particular case. Mm-hmm. There's probably a handful of like five or six of these guys that really, really stand up as really good looking suspects on this particular case. I know that there was a report recently that one of them is something well, that you can go on the Internet right now. And it says that the that they've solved the Zodiac killing. Yeah, I but, saw that. But, yeah, and, they're, and they're pointing at the uh, at this Lawrence K or slash Kane. Uh, right. You have a couple of guys. One is a really big name. You have uh, David uh, Orinchek. He's a, a cipher guy. You have Faisal uh, Zakawi. This is a, a guy who writes programming, and he he wrote programming specifically for the the one cipher where it says, "Here's my name," and so on and so right. forth. And in one of the AI ciphers or AI uh, decoding it, uh, something to the nature of, "I hope you're having a fun uh, fun uh, trying to catch me." And then it's quoted as him saying, or as anyway, alleged him saying, because this is a decode, we're not sure, but it says he has slaves in paradise for his next life in paradise. Slaves. Like, so, you know, ritualistic nonsense, like he's taking lives to walk him through the next life. Um, It's as far, and I'm no handwriting expert, but I did take a lot of still pictures of the ciphers and a lot of the, a lot of the characters, they're similar. Very, I mean, you would you want to say beyond a shadow of a doubt the same guy wrote them, except for one of them. I did take notice, and I didn't hear him say it in the show, but I did take notice in the O's and the uh, the upside-down T's and the underscores were, were vastly different, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. I think you're right. I, I don't think, that, and I'm going to agree with you this, I don't think there was a group of people working together. I don't think that. I personally think one mm-hmm. guy was uh, the Zodiac, as he claimed to the to media, and just started taking credit for other murders in order to to uh you know put the police into like this circle of confusion uh especially when there's one happening far away from where he typically would do this right so it's in that, and and to Jason's credit what he's saying like in 1968 you know no phones no internet no cameras it's a nightmare it's a it's a 100% a nightmare and this and this guy's intimidating the uh the newspaper people the police it's bizarre. The whole case. Well, let me bizarre. mention one of the, yeah. Let me mention one other thing. You bring up an inter- interesting point that one of them was kind of out of the area. You know, serial killers are like they're like they're we're all pe- people are creatures of habit. Okay, we like to stay around in the areas that we're familiar with and we're, we feel like we're secure in those areas. We generally drive the same way to work every day. 
uh, that that's just the way we operate. And serial killers are the same way to an extent. I mean, they're not going to they're not going to do their dirty deeds in areas that they're not familiar with because they don't want to get caught up short or, or whatever. Right. This is kind of the same type of a deal. BTK, if you look at his case map and, and the areas that he killed, it's for the most part. All of that is pretty concentrated in an area that he was very, very familiar and very comfortable in those particular areas. Right. He's kind of an interesting guy, too, because BTK is similar to 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 the zodiac in one respect and that was that they wanted that attention right they needed that attention and that's really what ultimately got btk caught but uh and both of so, them coined their own name yes absolutely yeah so he's you know it that, is a fascinating case though it that, really is that that guy he scares me that guy really did scare me the, the btk guy uh he was uh, a family guy with a job who tried to work for the police. I, I don't know the circumstances why he didn't get the job, but ultimately became a park ranger, uh, part of community reach out, part of community organizations. And right. Just, like an animal control officer wanting to be a police officer. And he tried to become a police officer as well. So, yeah. and he was just another, he's just another guy in the neighborhood like that. Yeah. He, I mean, when you look at him, you would never suspect him ever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like he doesn't look like the monster you de- he's depicted no. as like uh Leslie, um, her and I had an episode, which I'm going to be releasing this week. Some point, um, we talked about Ed Kemper. Now this guy, uh, he's a, he's a incredibly intelligent. Uh, he was very aware of, of not going back to the scene of the crime only because he's like six foot nine. He's a huge dude. He knew that he would stand out in, in, in the eyes of people. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, well, it doesn't matter where that guy goes. He's going to stand out. Uh, mm-hmm. For him to take the time and really think about um, what he's gonna, how he's going to behave, where what he's going to do, people like that should scare you. But the but uh, I gotta tell you, man, the BTK guy, he's he could be living next door to you, and you would never guess. You'd never have a shot. You'd never even see it coming. It that that troubled me. And you know, Les, you know, when Leslie's episode comes out with the Ed Kemper, uh, it was personal for her. Um, scary because you know she's receiving calls and and here's this guy who could probably manhandle stronger men let alone the women he was targeting and really had no mo the women weren't like of the same they didn't have like you know there wasn't like a brunette being targeted or a blonde he it was just women period uh maybe in a a certain age gap i'm not even not even certain of that you know um so i'll tell you what what would be really interesting for any of your listeners if you really wanted to have like a if you really want to dive in, the first is homework assignment for you for the Zodiac killing case, if this is something that really fascinates you, is watch Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood. It's the very first movie in the series that he did mm-hmm. with all those Dirty Harry movies, mm-hmm. and that movie is based on the Zodiac killer. <laughs> oh, wow. The whole movie is the Zo- – I don't know if you didn't if you didn't know. That movie came out in 1971. It's Homicide Detective in San Francisco. And it and it's he's making demands that he wants something published mm-hmm. in the newspaper that he's going to kill all these people if you don't. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a school bus. That whole movie is based on the Zodiac Killer. I didn't so know. and it's perfect because it's right around that time when the Zodiac Killer was on the minds of everybody right. in the Bay Area in San Francisco. You know, so interesting that they that they did that with all the. the I, I had no doubt the Zodiac Killer watched that movie. He oh, knew that, that movie is about him. He's 100% a narcissist. You know he watched the movie. <laughs> Absolutely. And he knows that it's about him because when you watch it, and I, I, I'm, I'm taking it, Adam, you didn't even know that. No, I but, had but no it, idea. It is about, it's about that case. It's 100% about that case. So, uh, 
And that's a great roadmap as to what was going on around number one around that time frame. Cause like I said, it's that movie came out in 1971. So the same techniques of how to investigate cases was the same in 1968 as it was in 71. And you get a glimpse as to what was available to them and what they could actually do at that time. I'm going to watch that movie, movie really now. holds up. I got to watch that movie. To. I have to. I have no choice. That's you a have good, to, like you said, it. that's a time capsule into procedure it is. then. That's that's amazing. You know, it is. Jason, let me ask you, have you have you ever been around a serial killer or you know, like have you encountered one of these guys? We had two serial killers in the city of Tulsa last year in 2022. I can tell you that and both of them got caught. I, I can tell you that with respect to those particular type of serial killers, they're not the they're not the type of serial killers that I think people visualize. I, I think most people visualize the the Ted Bundy type sexual right. sadistic type killing killers. Uh, we're not talking about those type. We're just talking about guys that that's almost like. Well, there's two of them that I mentioned there, and I and I'm dealing kind of with one on my own that's more of the gangster variety serial killer. That is a guy that was a uh, he's just a shooter. I mean, he's a shooter in the in the gang world, right? And and this guy would kill you on sight, okay? But uh, so I've I've had experience, a little bit of experience, uh, not a whole lot, but I but I am dealing with one right now where I know that this guy is probably good for multiple murders and it's just, we're trying to get to the bottom of some of them, but no, it just doesn't happen a whole lot. I, I can tell you in the city of Tulsa that I'm aware of, I can't, I know that they identified somebody from the seventies. that was a truck driver passing through that they, that they think, or I know that guy was a serial killer. And then they believe some, one of the victims was here in this area, et cetera. But uh, it's not something that fortunately, fortunately we haven't had a lot of experience in dealing with that. But of course I, uh, I'm certainly fascinated with it. I mean, it's just, it's interesting because, you know, well, we've I had mean, spree killers and stuff, of course. And those that, that the, the mass shooters, we had one of those last year as well. We kind of got hit with all what you could, if you could imagine it, we had it in, in, in 2022. So we did have a mass shooting. As a matter of fact, we had the first mass shooting after Uvalde. Uh, it was the very first one in the country, uh, right at following Uvalde. So, uh, you know, the, the eyes of the country were honest, believe me, after that situation, but, uh, no, we just had the two serial killers, but these weren't like your sexual sadistic type killers. They right. were they what they were they were contractors. Not, I'm not going to say that they were clinically mentally ill, but there's something wrong. Well, uh, yeah, I mean at, they, the, they, at the at the end of the day, even if you're a contract killer, you're getting paid to murder, you're still yes. a psychopath at your core. Mm-hmm. You know? There's I something mean, wrong. Yeah. yeah you, I mean there's no human being that I don't care what money you're getting paid that they go to bed after 13 people and they're they're going to bed. If you're going to bed a okay after you've killed a number of people, eh, it's probably mm-hmm. safe to say you shouldn't be in society. You know, uh, right. here's a different perspective too. And when I spoke with Leslie the night after I'd spoken to her, it uh it it enlightened me because I I never spoke to someone who was vetted by a murderer. Right. So Leslie, for you, this is a good perspective for probably even Jason here. In that period of time when he, when you have Ed Kemper calling your house and he's calling other people in the neighborhood, not just what you're feeling, but what's the feeling of you and the neighborhood at that time in that era? Well, you have to remember that we didn't know it was him that was calling. Right. So that was that was information that came to light. It was just a stranger calling and uh, I didn't have a lot of contact with the people that lived next door to us 
or the people on the other side of them. Um, I think my mom talked to them a little bit more. I was a teenager and uh, I was just kind of doing teenage stuff. And so um, the phone calls, how they affected me was uh, uh, just changed my life to uh, kind of my naivety, I guess you would say, of uh, of the innocence of life. I mean, I knew things went on, but it became really personal really quick. And um, so I think, you know, it was a method for him to terrorize everyone in the neighborhood. That was, and I'm sure he got a lot of joy out of the things he said and the reaction as a man with his IQ would certainly know what kind of reaction he was getting from uh, the people he was calling. Right. I mean, you know, especially it, it has a profound effect on it. You, you had an emotional response when we were talking and it's only because at that time when you revisit it, you realize who the person is. Mm-hmm. It, it's more terrifying when they're a stranger because now it's, it's a monster in the night. But when there's a face to that monster and that monster six foot, you know, nine and, and just so he, how do you describe his, 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 uh, his disposition? He was just so stoic. Very oh, ma- he was Yeah. Very matter of fact. Yeah. That's what I told the detective when he came out to take the report. Um, I just knew when he called that he wasn't a kid or a person fooling around. He was, uh, this is just what he was about and um it was chilling yeah i mean the, the psychology behind that um you know and we talked more in depth about ed kemper is you know his background contributed a lot to it not not mm-hmm. even though he did like we said he got he got involved with hurting animals that that really wasn't his tri- that wasn't demonstrated by him early on his psychosis came from pain and some pretty serious shit his mom put him through However, that doesn't excuse his actions. The point I make is you have this area where the Zodiac's loose. And, you know, for a a long period of time, this guy is terrorizing the news. He's terrorizing neighborhoods. So let me give you a memory I have. When I was a kid in Brooklyn, there was a guy who was, uh, I, I guess, trying to abduct children in Brooklyn. And... It's a little different than a small town because in Brooklyn, I remember the adults hiding like bats and sticks. <laughs> so if they saw the guy, because that guy was not going go to go to jail if they found him, you know, uh, in that neighborhood in Brooklyn, if they if the parents caught you, your death sentence automatically. Um, but it's got to be different for people in smaller communities. that don't, you know, it's it, not as compact as a city. And there's this villain that's walking around doing these horrible things and the psychology on the people has got to be it's mortifying, you know? And then like, I, I, I can, I give kudos to Jason, like to do his job. It's, it's, it's not easy to do Jason's job. It doesn't matter who you are. It, eventually it takes a toll on you or it takes a toll on you a moment. I'd spoken to some other homicide detectives that don't come on the podcast. And what seems to be the common, uh, the, the common problem is when it involves children, it, it takes a really mm-hmm really hard hit on detectives jason children for you that's that's got to be the hardest of them all right okay let me give you an example of of something that happened to me yesterday that has never happened to me in my career 
and and that I had to give a six year old a death notification. Mm. Okay, about his mother. Mm. And you talk about rip your heart out and just absolutely one of the most miserable things I've ever had to do is to sit there on the floor with a six-year-old and explain. And and this is all the, the, the DHS workers, of course, were the ones that were the psychologists, all the people that are involved in the human resources area. Right. And, and they don't, they don't do those. So they, they asked, they asked me to do it. And, and so I did in reference to their mother's death and it's just, yeah, of course, when you're dealing with children, that was a little bit different because I'm dealing with a, a kid that's alive, and right. I, and I and and this kid doesn't even really understand the concept of death, honestly. But with when you have children that are dead, uh, that's uh, that takes it to a whole other level, mm-hmm. you know. And quite frankly, I'm I'm actually I feel blessed in the city of Tulsa that that we do handle some kid murders and deaths. That's going to be more of the variety of like a family annihilation or a murder suicide of the entire family. Right. We would handle those. Whereas we don't handle like babies, baby deaths when somebody rolls over on the baby in the middle of the night and, and you know, the parent is sleeping with the kid in bed, et cetera, where it might be an accidental. We don't work those. Thank heavens. We also don't work the ones where it's like a child abuse where, the parent might have shaken the baby kind of a thing. That's going to be more geared towards a child crisis unit where we come in. We're better suited to deal with people that are stabbed, shot, mutilated, uh, just flat out cold blooded murder type, not the abuse type. They're better suited for that. So fortunately, I don't have to deal with that on a regular basis. Uh, but what we, we have from time to time and, and those are horrible. The, uh, the, the couple of other points, and I, I don't want to jump around, but there was one thing that you'd mentioned. The, you know, when you talk about Ed Kemper, just for the listeners to know, that's actually where the profiling unit from the FBI originated from. Ed Kemper was the number one guy, the first guy that John Douglas had actually went out and and interviewed, probably with his colleagues, and and they interviewed him, and that's that that was the beginning, just historically, of where the profiling unit for the FBI started and that that's where it originated from if i'm not mistaken no you're right sure that's, there's, that's what there's actually a show that surrounds that um mind hunter yes, mind hunters uh which is great yeah it's a great show and it also gives you an idea of how you know behind we were then we had no idea profiling in that era it's it's like today is sophisticated in comparison to what they had to, back then it was like a, like a crapshoot um well and i still think it is to i mean listen You'll hear about it when they get it right. Oh, of course. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of speculation that goes into a profile. All right. So I'm not I'm not I'm not just I'm not a profiler. I don't even know what it takes for them to become a profiler, honestly. But but I've talked to them before and and I, I think that it's it's really it's difficult. Okay. It's really difficult. The thing that you'd mentioned also, just real quick, that something just jumped into my mind was two things. You'd mentioned, I think it was Leslie that mentioned this, was that the different jurisdictions and the lack of sharing of information. And it might have been you that mentioned that too, Adam. That yeah. stuff still goes on today. You would think that we would learn, we would learn to better, uh, better work together. And I don't understand what the situation, why we do this to ourselves, but, but we just don't want to let go of that information. I don't know if it's a human nature thing where you might have some police officers that don't want somebody else to get the credit for, for solving this complicated case. The same thing happened in the night stalker. The same thing happened in the hillside stranglers. The same thing happened in the Manson murders. I can tell you of cases right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or the lack of sharing of information is detrimental to a case. I mean, it happens all over the country. That's one thing that I wanted to mention. The other thing that you'd said that kind of gives you a time, like 
we're talking about a time here. When you talked about, and, and Leslie mentioned this, when Ed Kemper was calling your house and maybe he was heavy breathing or he was talking or do, doing whatever. Well, that's people made prank calls back then all the time. Right. I mean, this is before the days of star six, seven or star six, nine mm-hmm. on your phone where prank callers and I'm talking all kinds of people, kids, they would call and they'd start heavy mm-hmm. breathing. Why do they do that? They're trying to scare the person on the other end mm-hmm. of the phone. Right. You know, and that stuff happened a lot. Probably, I'm not going to say it happened all the time, but it it was more much more frequent where people would do that. And the Golden State Killer comes to mind as somebody that was doing that, too, where he was calling his victims beforehand or terrorizing his neighbors by telling them he was going to kill them. Can you imagine getting a phone call in the middle? Of, believe me, I get these phone calls in the middle of the night where I've got somebody screaming and yelling and cussing at me. Believe me, that's happened yeah. at three o'clock in the morning. You have a moment there where you are terrified, mm-hmm. even me, where I'm like, what in the world? Who is this crazy person? <laughs> imagine that happening with with somebody getting these phone calls just like you did leslie it's terror it's it's mm-hmm. it's f- frightening to the core and and for the zodiac killer i mean he was utilizing things like that to inflict like uh he's inflicting fear that's what it is it's like a, a it's a form of terrorism really mm-hmm. and that's what he was doing back then and my dad actually he remembers when the zodiac killer called into the radio station because we lived in the bay i i wasn't alive when in 68 i was a, I, I was born in 70 but i i grew up started growing up in that area and my dad remembers hearing that that hear him call into the radio station i mean as did many 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 thousands of people uh that when he called in and i don't even know for sure if they've even verified that that's actually him or not i think it is because he talks specifically about the taxi driver that you that you had said because he'd actually cut a piece of the guy's clothing mm-hmm. uh from his an article of clothing so they could prove that it was him exactly yeah but, he would he would make note of things that were not public knowledge too the guy called in absolutely and yeah, you absolutely. know like ed kemper i firmly believe that he was making those calls in that area i was telling leslie this is that he was gauging the level of fear in the voice and that's how he's vetting mm-hmm. his victims right because it fear is a control factor from as well as in some cases a turn on, but uh, a majority of them they recognize as if more you could actually can. This is demonstrated in in a lot of um, uh, what is it Stockholm syndrome, where they instill so much fear that it becomes a control, and then the 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 victim themselves start finding themselves uh, emotionally attached to this person, which right hard to believe for me, but then but it happens. It's it it's it's noted. So, right. Let me, let me ask you, Jason, uh, we touched, you touched it early, Doug, that Night Stalker, uh, for one, I saw an interview with him, and he's smiling, and he's got, I, I kid you, I'm not kidding when I say this, a group of fans outside, fans, oh, yeah. I mean, women too, women fans outside, like, uh, insanity, but looking in that guy's eyes when he's talking about the murders, it's, uh, he's, it's just of them. Some people, it's just in them to be that person, and that that should frighten humanity. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like in in that era, in, in an era where there was the communication was lacking, and even like you're saying, the, the compartmentalization of stuff and and jurisdictions. At what point does like uh like I mean, does the FBI ever step in and say, "Look, this is you know, this, you're a little over your head here. Uh, we you know, we could pretty much cross borders." Why, why is it? Why is there no like? Why is that not happening when there's like serial killings happening in multiple jurisdictions? Why isn't that not like instead of I get not wanting to cooperate? You you want your information? You wanna you wanna be the the hero of that case? Maybe I, I don't know what it is, 
But why doesn't like uh, a larger body of agencies step up and say, look, let us handle this? Or does that happen? Well, I think a lot of it, I, I, each, each case is going to be a different scenario as to what the reasons are that that that, that aren't going on. Uh, probably in some some instances, it might be a personal bias that, that somebody might have towards the FBI or they, they just don't want their assistance. I can tell you that personally, the FBI provides a lot of really interesting resources they've got they've got deep pockets okay right. and they have the ability to be able to do a lot of stuff that your ordinary police department can't do with respect to phone data maybe or just lab testing etc that's that's one of the things that jumps out to me that the fbi would work wonders here uh i i i don't know what the the situation is i don't know a lot of it could be just simply because they have this adversarial relationship from one department to the next in some jurisdictions fortunately i don't deal with that much here for the most part we all i know detectives from other communities that are adjacent to tulsa and in those when they get a murder especially in the smaller jurisdictions i've gotten many phone calls from these guys that are like what do you think about this case and what would you recommend? And they, and they're looking for assistance from just us. Cause we're the, we're the big murder city in the surrounding areas. We're the ones that deal with most of them. And then they might get one or two a year, or even it might be many years before a local agency gets one. And they'll, they're smart by actually calling an agency like us where we deal with it all the time. But I, I don't know. I think that that's, that's in part that now the FBI, I don't know what the, Listen, I, I, I've never ran into it. We're, we're a big city, so we don't rely upon the FBI to necessarily jump in on a case. To, they're not going to take it over from us. We, we're pretty capable of, of handling what we need to handle. Now, of course, if it was an act of terrorism, I'm sure that there could be something that they could come in and, and try to try to take something over or whatever. But for the most part, we don't deal with them on that level, so I don't really have the answer for that. But I will tell you, let's think about just briefly, this case. what are they doing with this case now? Okay, so so in reference to this case right now, what what would what would I do? I I would reopen every one of these cases. I would you would have to try to talk and have like a task force with other agencies. You all should sit in a room and have a list of things that you should do here, uh, and 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 everybody should be on board and willing to discuss and be criticized or uh to really come up the game plan that's kind of unified is right. really what they need to do like a task force yeah i mean look, and I, then st- i had lenny DePaul on the show and if you recall in 2008 he had he was on a uh, a television show called uh manhunters uh, mm-hmm. fugitive task force and they basically said we're going to form a task force of some of the greatest members of law enforcement from you know multiple states multiple agencies and we're going to go out and get these 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 dangerous people, and the communication, the cooperation from from jurisdiction to state to state, they broke records on on yeah. fugitives apprehended. I mean, it was yeah. a great undertaking. So, in the world of homicide, when you have these quote unquote serial killings and or cold cases, there should be like a task force, like Jason. Maybe Jason White is now the head of the task force that oversees homicides that are both unsolved or ongoing or active state to state and get the, the, the best of the best from these different states and agencies to do this. Cause you believe it or not, even though right now, if there's a, a, a bunch of homicides and it happened in another jurisdiction, but similar ones are you you think the same guys on both and there's that weird cooperation on happening. Did you know in, in the world of ufology, let's just talk about UFOs. Um, if 
police are called to a scene for a UFO. I don't know if it's the same for you. I don't know if you ever got a call or heard of anyone getting it. But there is a, a department now that's solely in charge of that from the government. Can you imagine that? Like human life has been taken and being taken. There's no department that's, that spans nationwide for one entity to create a task force yet. When there's a UFO sighting, they have, a, they have this the department that works for the government that will come out and investigate. And I'm not talking MUFON. That's a private organization. Um, for homicides, I, I, in my, here, just my imagination, um, and maybe some television shows should knock on Jason White's door here. Like, hey, you know, it worked for uh, the Manhunters when we're, we're, you know, actively tracking down these, these dangerous people. I, 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 I want to say that, you know, murderers are the top of that list, Right. Well, I I have a couple of thoughts here. First of all, there's murders happening around the country all the time, right? So to figure out what cases would justify that sort of a task force, it would take seeing some trends. And I know now with computer analytical software, they can analyze data and maybe start to see some of those trends. And if something's happening here, it's similar over there. But I think that's relatively new to interconnect with that information. And since we're talking about the Zodiac, I think in particular, as we said at the beginning, there's so many variables that are not consistent. Just his uh, jurisdiction of where he committed the crime, the method, the uh, the people that he decided uh, he was going to murder. It's it would have been harder at that point to really link up um, the different cases. And then, do we even know looking back, um, like the case in Riverside that is now being attributed to the Zodiac? Um, that was a single gal. And I think um, she was stabbed, as I recall. Uh, but at the time before that, uh, maybe it was after, but um, the next um, murder that was attributed to him were couples twice, you know. And then uh, so I think it would be a little harder to um, to establish a task force you're talking the whole country unless unless you see definite certainty, maybe DNA. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Uh, something that that uh, solidly links the cases together. And then I, I, I agree that a task force is a great idea in terms of you have more bodies on it and everyone working together for the same goal. But at the same time... Um, your police departments are supposed to be able to manage crime in their area and, and to kind of come in all of a sudden and say, well, you've had more than three and they look all similar. So we're coming in and we're going to help you. I don't know. How would a police department well, sort of feel about that, Jason? Real, real quick, before you go there, let, let's let's eliminate the serial killer aspect, right? Let's rewind time to John Vinay Ramsey. Um, that department didn't have the capacity to solve a homicide, right? A, a high profile one like that. So in my imagination, we, you know, there's this department, there's this little girl, she's, uh, she's been murdered. We suspect the father, the father doesn't think he did it. There might be someone else. 
why don't we as this department say, look, we're, we're a little over our heads. Uh, let's contact uh, uh, an agency or, or a task force. That's And then you have the task force. You have a Jason White, several other detectives. They fly out there. They, they're, they're made, you know, they're given the information surrounding the case and not take it over. But they're assisting at a, at a higher caliber. Right. These Jason White is a vetted homicide detective. You know what I mean? He's worked a bunch. He he's. So, but does that make sense to you, Jason? Like you would get, like the task force would get called in for this case that's considerably unsolvable. So they have you and your task force come out for assistance. Well, for, first of all, I would love to have that kind of a job. How cool would that be where you'd right. be able to go to various places in the country and, and be a part of some kind of a project like that? I think it would be fabulous. But uh, I, I've never heard of anything like that going on, but it would be, it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, I, I just think that's basically needed. be a part of something like that. And, 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 you know, the first thing that I think you would have to have is you'd have to have everybody check their egos at the door. And I don't know that that's necessarily possible. I yeah. mean, you got you got various you got the feds, you got state, you got local people that are going to be involved in these type of cases. And they all in and of themselves have their own little their own, you know, the, the municipal cops. That's their that's their mm-hmm. slice of the world. Mm-hmm. And and they feel like they've got a pretty good grasp of everything that's going on there. I mean, it really starts out with with, you know, what you should do. I've had cases like this and I and I and I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you kind of, I'll, I'll give you an example. So we had a case where, where a young lady was basically, uh, brutally raped and she was thrown into a dumpster, brutally attacked, horrible, obviously raped or, or at least sexually assaulted to some extent and thrown into a dumpster. Well, you know, the first thing that I thought we needed to do is we needed to consult with sex crimes. They call them the special victims unit in many places now, but it's the it's sex crimes is what it is. Right. Why would you not consult with the subject matter experts that are that are that deal with that specific thing? If I'm dealing with an auto theft ring of homicide people, I'm going to call auto theft and I have somebody from that team that's going to be a part of what we're do- talking about. Furthermore, I'm going to immediately talk to the people that work that patrol that area on a daily basis. The patrol officer that knows people in that community, that actually the community is more trustworthy. They're, they're going to be more trustworthy and willing to speak to them than they would be the average uh, just any old cop or somebody from the federal government that's going to come in here that says that we're here to help and you're going to tell me because I'm the FBI kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Right. It's not going to work. So, so that's how we solve cases. How we solve cases, it's not complicated. It's not building a rocket. It comes down to simple interaction with the public basically talking to people and asking questions and that comes even to the beat cop that works that area ask him hey man who do you know that's that's that what do you know about what's going on over in this area have you ever seen a guy that looks like this there's a murder case and i can't remember which one it was it was something that just happened recently that i i saw on tv or something where they actually enlisted the 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 beat cop that worked that specific area and had him listen to the recording of this particular killer and he's like oh yeah that's so-and-so right yeah because he knows (laughs) the community yeah I mean, so but, the point of my story is, is if you, if you have a group of cops and we're all sitting in a room as homicide detectives and we're all super smart because we're just the subject matter experts and we know everything. Right. And but yet we're not sharing some of these details with people that might be able to help us in that. But I wish I could remember the case because it just came to my mind. It just I just learned about this recently where in that particular case, had they not shared this information with the simple beat cop who is a super important person in the dynamic here that, uh, you know, they would have been scratching their head for decades. Maybe they could have been an unsolved case because they never took the time right. to ask the guy that works that area deals with all the knuckleheads in that area. I mean, I, I can see your point. You, you have a basketball team and everyone's Michael Jordan, right? Everyone wants that ball. I get it. it 
But at some point, this this task force I'm imagining that's funded by you know someone hired in your in, in your local agency to call in for what I would call specialized cases, whether it be uh, a serial killer case that's that's just you know these guys are over their head or, or they're you know they're burnt out, and or mm-hmm. like the Jean Benet Ramsey, which. We're going to get that. By the way, that's going to be one of our future topics. I'm, I'm working on getting uh, a, uh, a former FBI agent who's looking at that case, and I'm working on getting him involved as get us on the, on the panel with us with this. Um, that case bothered me because the detective on working that case just didn't get homicides. He wasn't he wasn't prepared. Uh, the rest of the the agency, they, it just they seemed overwhelmed. Uh, they made a tremendous amount of mistakes. A lot of things were overlooked. In which, why in my mind, they're like, well, you know what? Let's call that task force that Jason White's on and get the team here. And ego or no ego, they're going to be able to take their experience and their expertise and loan it to this local agency. And just as you said, now, as you just said to me, like, oh, I remember this case where a beat cop was really important. Mm-hmm. That's that aha moment you would have in that for that agency and in that time. Well, what yeah. about this? Or it's that kind of thinking out of the box that you, you need to solve complex murders sometimes. Yeah, especially- and I don't know what the rules are in Colorado, but I can tell you from Oklahoma perspective. Okay, mm-hmm. so in Oklahoma, let's just hypothetically speak. Let's just hypothetically think that the Jean Benet Ramsey case happened in Catoosa, Oklahoma. All right, so right. some small town in Oklahoma. Let's say it happened there. Well, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, they can't just go in there and take over a case with respect to that. They, the, the local agency actually has to request them to come in and work the case. I think it's kind of – I don't know why that, that ruling is. I don't know what the ins and outs of that are. I would assume to some extent that it's probably similar to that or if not the same in Colorado. Otherwise, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation or the Colorado State Police, whichever one it is, they would have – immediately jumped in on that case and started saying not necessarily that you're going to take the case over but you're going to be embedded with them and you're going to work alongside of them to assist them in any way that they need it uh and almost like it's almost like well this is the way it's gonna it just needs to happen that way in boulder colorado i think if i remember correctly with respect to that case i think they only had three murders that year this is not a town that is inundated with 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 homicide so especially one that is as complex as that case i've been to that house actually Uh, it's a yeah, there's a there's a I I wanted to knock on the door, but I thought, nah, that's going to be too weird. <laughs> but 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 it, but it, but it's it, it would be a really interesting crime scene still to this day to literally walk through that house and get a feel for where the entry point was I- into the basement, and just the layout of the house would be fascinating just to walk through it. But I still I don't know that that case is ever going to be solved unless there's real. I don't know because I don't know uh, well, what all I mean, the evidence is. Here's Nobody the thing. does really. John Ramsey, the father, is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money to this day trying to figure it out. He's that the man has not rested since then. He was crucified in the media like they always do. Of course, uh, yeah, of course. He was basically chased out of his neighborhood because you know mm-hmm. judgment of peers, etc. Yet he's sure. still spending money. He's reaching out to the FBI. He got a show on on uh, Hulu. Uh, he pushed pushed for this FBI agent to to revisit it uh, because there was a detective that was looking at the time and he passed away during the investigation and he drove some pretty good points uh, about the the way the answer is. There was a suspicious man in the area at that time. There was note of him. When we do our episode, we'll cover that in detail. 
But the no, point I think of- that's great. That's a case that I'm I'm really excited about talking about, actually. And, yeah. And that's a case that I think every homicide detective should have if if they if they are not aware. Uh, one of the things that I I I, I kind of get frustrated a little bit with with some of these homicide guys that come into the to the unit. It's like, hey, go home and watch all of the episodes of Cold Justice. You know, they talk about how to solve a cold case. It's great. And then you get these guys and you ask them, hey, did you watch any of those episodes? No, I haven't got around to it. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. That should be a a required watch of anything on a case like that to just kind of see. You can see the mistakes in some instances of what they made. Why, why are we repeating history? I mean, don't make those same mistakes and, right. and, and really look at cases with an open mind. I think it's a fascinating case, actually. But yeah, you uh, got to take mental notes. Anything that. Like like uh, when Leslie published her book, um, listen, she didn't publish it just based on small information. She did she did her due diligence. She read through everything. She went she covered as much information as possible to provide the story to the public. Uh, right? Are there critics right. for her? Like she said, sure. Uh, she wasn't there to solve the case. She was there to provide the information given. You know, you know, she's not trying to render her opinion and and throw someone to the wolves. Like I suspect this person. But she did her due diligence. And just like you said, when you're a homicide detective, yeah, you should definitely look at cases, definitely watch it, look for holes. Uh, when you play pool against another opponent, the, the one of the things I do, you watch their video. You see what they like and don't like. You know, that's why there'll never be a video of me. Because <laughs> I could study them. So anything you're going to do, you have to study it through and through. Uh, I, I I think at the end of the day, people are going to when when the, when this thing hits the hits the internet on your YouTube page and stuff, people are going to go. Well, wait a second, they didn't really even talk too much about about the zodiac. Really, they were talking about all these other things. Well, these other things are really the important thing, and that's right. kind of what you you can talk about these each one of these suspects, and you can dissect each what where, how why they thought that this person might have been involved or this person was involved, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but really, you're hearing what the reasons are that that this investigation lagged or they had complications. It is the lack of communication with one another. Right. It is the the primitive crime scene that uh, abilities that they had back in 1968. Uh, it's just that's and they didn't have like nowadays. You brought some other point up is with respect to the Zodiac specifically. When you have a homicide that happens in another jurisdiction, well, back then, unless it was in the front page of the newspaper, mm-hmm. it was in the San Francisco Chronicle, you may not even know about that case right. if you're working in San Francisco. Think about the one that happened down in Riverside or wherever it was down mm-hmm. in Southern California. Those guys aren't even going to have a clue about that homicide because there is no Internet. There is none of that. Mm-hmm. They would have to literally be somebody from that jurisdiction down there going, huh? This is weird, uh, and it was the same thing with the Night Stalker case. Really, believe it or not, and I'm and I'm gonna get, I'm actually gonna be hanging out with Gil Carrillo in a couple of weeks, and 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 he was the lead for the Night Stalker case, and I'm super excited about sitting with him and meeting him in person and just kind of listening to about the case. I'm going to learn a ton about that case. I'm super excited about talking to him, but he talks about that in that documentary on Netflix where. You'd have another agency just outside, you know, Los Angeles has got a lot of other communities here and there, all around there, that the murder happens over here, and they might not even know anything Mm -hmm. about that case, you know, and so fortunately for us, they actually took it upon themselves to go to some of these jurisdictions and show up on some of these cases and so forth and and kind of lend, you know, help, try to help them, you know, kind of a deal, so 
I don't know, but when people listen to this whole podcast, that's the one point I wanted to make because there there may be some criticism like, well, wait a second. They didn't talk about uh, this well, guy, this guy, this guy. I'll answer the criticism know. right now. At the end of the day, this is really a talk show with three people who are just yeah. having a conversation and uh, the people listening just get the eavesdrop, right? This isn't like I'm going to provide some groundbreaking information no. uh, and no. covering these other cases and talk about other homicides. There are links and it, and it does tie in. We should have learned from the Zodiac. We should have learned from the Jean Brene Ramsey. We should have learned from the OJ case. We should, I would, let me tell you what I would watch. I would be subscribed and full time watching a show with Jason White and the task force who are sent around the country to look at some homicides because local agencies are struggling. I would, I would pay good money to see that for two reasons. One, I know that they're putting forth their, their best players for that game. You know, coach, give me the ball, right? Let them get in there, play the game, and really work to help these local people. This isn't trying to outshine a local agency. Let's remember, someone lost their life, and it's it's the obligation of the state to figure out who that is, and when they can't do it, it's time to call the All-Stars, period. And then the other part is, for this whole thing, why we speak about everything in the way we do, is because when you, it's that one person that's going to listen to a podcast, that's going to hear something, then they're going to they're gonna be like, well, you know what they didn't cover, and they're going to go do their research, and in their research, they might have an aha moment. They'll either put it into the, the comments or they'll contact the local agency. Like, you know what? This rings a bell for whatever reason. You never know. It's uh, someone, I read a statistic once. One of the, the, the strongest uh, crime-solving individuals out there is the sleuth at home, the, the, the man or woman who's at home. They're interested in it, and they're just, they just have a mind for it. And something that might click in their mind, they'll come forth with it and say it. And it might be, maybe it's uh, nonsense to the people in their circle, but that detective's like, well, you know, that's a good idea. Let's have a look a at perfect it. Ex- a perfect example of that is Don't F With Cats, that docu- documentary about that. The, it's called Don't F With Cats. Yeah, I haven't that watched it. That's a perfect example of that, where the, the armchair quarterbacks at home, the, the, the amateur sleuths that are home, they're the reason for that case getting solved. I mean, I, 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 I I'm going to give them a hundred percent credit on that deal. They're the reasons that that case got solved. That they're the reason, really, to tell you the truth. They're probably heroes in a sense that they saved lives, many right. lives, because God only knows how many other people that guy would have killed before. But they continue to put the pressure on, and that's people that watched that, and they and they started put piecing things together and and so forth. And that's really that's really what this is about. This job is about that. It's about sitting down. And I'll tell you, and I've said this before, Adam. You know, here in Tulsa, you know, we've had an average of solving. I'll just give you a, an interesting statistic right now. In the city of Tulsa since 1963, we have had 2,781 homicides in the city of our in our city. 2,781. Out of those, we've solved 87 percent of them. Since 2016, it's roughly in the neighborhood of 95, 96 percent of our homicides we've solved. And one of the big reasons for it is. Teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) That's what's up. Yeah, it's just working well as a team, communicating and having good relationships with the public. That's really what's up because most of these cases are solved by people being comfortable with telling you what's up or uh, just having the interactions within a public, you know, kind of a thing. So that's really the simple building blocks. And where you see cities that don't have a very high success rate, some of it's the demographics and some of it's just the historical relationships that they've had with or distrust that they've had with the police departments and stuff you know here in tulsa this is the site of the worst race massacre in this country's history from 1921 whereas 
we have built we've we we work very hard with the public to try to 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 have good communication with them and and if you're in departments where they have a low number maybe it's uh i don't, i hate to throw anybody under the bus but let's just say detroit as an example or some of these other cities where you're going to have low numbers a lot of that has to do with just i think that there's that lack of building trust in the community and and really getting out there and and maybe just treating people right and talking to people right i mean it's really my dad gave me there's one thing that i'll mention and i'll get off i'll I'll quit running on here but probably the best advice that my dad ever gave me in my whole career and it's when i came on the police department and he told me he said listen there's two things of advice that he told me the first one was shut your mouth and listen to those that have been there longer than you and listened be trainable, basically, is what he's right, talking right. about. And and I think that that's one thing that we're kind of losing with the, the newer generations. The second thing was, is make sure that your badge, this is really the more important one, make sure that your badge is the same size it was the day they issued it to you, not five sizes too big. Ah, yeah. It just means treating people right. And if you treat people right, you would be amazed at the amount of information that you get from people. And that's all it is. It's not difficult. You lose the cop persona. You're just a person that wants to do the right thing. Right. And when you go into it with interviewing these people and stuff, you'd be amazed at how much information you get. And 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 it really goes down to that. And I think that and trying not to get tunnel visioned. And I think that probably happened to the Jean Benet Ramsey case to a large extent, where automatically everybody's just thinking, oh, it's got to be the parents, and we're not going to think of anything else that could possibly be. Uh, the th- same thing still, you know, you're talking 1968 with the Zodiac. People don't, weren't interested in training people back then. They didn't have any training. I mean, I don't even know if they, they had conferences throughout the country. They didn't have associations, which now we do, where we do have like-minded homicide detectives that get together and they teach about stuff. And we sit there and we go to these things. And I'll be, I'll be teaching at one in San Antonio. So, you know, we, we that's how we learn is we learn from other people. that that And we just didn't have that back then in 1968. And thank God that we're getting to a point now where we want to learn. And fortunately, most of, most of the people that are in assignments like this in homicide most are people that breathe homicide that are obsessed with it to an extent and that's what you want you want people that are almost obsessive compulsive to a point uh, about these type of cases and they want to bring justice to the families you know that's just what's up yeah. they don't, we lie awake at, uh, at night on these cases from time to time believe me i agree so. with you i saw i saw a video uh, of a deposition with a woman who was a lieutenant for 19 years. And in this deposition, she couldn't recite the Miranda rights by, by heart. That scared the shit out of me. I'm like, what, what? And they were asking her questions about law and she couldn't even answer the question. She didn't, she just flat didn't know. And then they went to the next guy, same thing. Um, and then you have cops like you and other cops I'd spoken to and cops I've watched on videos or they know things inside out. It's there's this thing called dedication, you know. And you, if you're gonna do something, you got to do it at the highest level. Because if you don't, you're just cruising. You know, you have no ambition, so you're not really gonna make a contribution to the the team you're a part of, to the community. You got to really want to step up and do great. Otherwise, you're again, if you're just coasting, like, do you know who should never coast? Anyone that works in the medical profession. You should not coast. If you're in that profession and you're coasting, you should quit because that, you know, lives are at stake. Health is at stake. You know, you got to do it at the highest level. And, you know, some people are underappreciated. They're underpaid. I get that. But if you didn't have passion for what you're doing in the beginning, then 
the patient have been a question to start with, right? Uh, like Leslie, Leslie, when she does her book, she, she takes pride in what she does. And when she does her research, she takes pride in it. Um, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation, especially in cities like Chicago. It's a war zone. And you're, I'll at- tell you something. I'll tell you something, Adam, you're, you're hitting on something that's really interesting to me. So that, that I, I don't mention it very often, but that's one of the advantages of the first 48. Honestly, I have felt that we have been tremendously blessed to be a part of something like that. And to give you an example, a real quick, real super quick example of what I'm talking about. We had a, we had a, a, a white family that came up there and they came up to our waiting room and there was a guy that was in his fifties, his wife. And you could tell these people had lived a hard life. I mean, honestly, and, and they bring their 18 year old daughter up there. And he, and of course, you know, one of my, one of my colleagues says, Hey, they're talking about something. It sounds like it could be a murder. I don't know. Well, it's, since you're up, you need to go talk to him. So I go out there and they're like, Oh my gosh, it's great to meet you, which we get that a lot in the community. It's kind of a cool thing. Right. Most people hate the police, but in fact, they kind of almost feel like they know us because they see us on TV in some communities. They watch us all the time. And so this guy goes, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I, spent over half of my life in prison and I was raised to hate the cops, but I love you guys. And I brought my daughter up here because my daughter witnessed a murder yesterday and she's going to tell you all about it. It didn't happen in Tulsa, but I brought her to you guys because I trust you guys. Yep. That is the value of something now. Now. So what the moral of that is, is that one of the benefits of it, and a lot of people might go, well, why in the world would you want to have a show about murder in that community, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, as part of your travel brochure, so to speak, well, people get to see that we treat people right. And we really do. I mean, we, 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 we have moments with these families that we're, I'm tearing up, you know, at sometimes when I'm, when I'm telling them what in the world happened and you build relationships with these people. So it's kind of the benefits. And I think that's one of the things that's really powerful about a show like that is people get to see really the passion. Uh, that exist of what we do to bring peace to these families and the extents that we're willing to go to make that happen at personal sacrifice that is far beyond anything that people realize really. So I don't know. I think that, that I am honored to be all of the homicide guys. We are honored to be in a position like this of such responsibility. And, and I think that, that, we should never stop searching for justice on these cold cases. Uh, and, 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 and literally 1968, I just out of coincidence, 1968 is the, the, the oldest case that we have in our cold case room that dates. We don't have anything from 1967. I couldn't tell you one murder that happened in 1967 that's unsolved. And so, but that's, that's the year that we had. That's when you start having quality control. Uh, an accountability of where these cases are. Where are they? Before that, there may not have been any quality control. Some of those case books literally might have ended up in somebody's garage. And God only knows, might have ended up in a dump somewhere because the the guy had case books in his garage. He dies, and then the family just throws it away. I mean, and that those cases are gone forever. We don't have those things going on today. And also remember that when you're talking about cases from 1968, I've ran into this relatively recently. Uh, when I say recently, probably seven or eight years ago, where I started looking at a 1978 case because of a case that I was working. And in that particular case, 
those case reports are typewritten from a typewriter. Right. I know some people might not know what that is, but let me tell you something. Those letters off of that typewriter, those fall off of the pages after many, many decades. So I would say that it probably 25% of that case, I couldn't even read it wow. because it's so faded and the, the stuff is gone. So we have to work towards preservation of older cases, digitizing interviews and because these cds there's a shelf life on those too as there is on vhs tapes and cassette tapes right and floppy think about floppy disk for an example there's a whole era that we have floppy disk and if you don't have a reader then how the heck are you gonna look at stuff not so to mention all of these things that we have to keep huh yeah, they corrode floppy disk yes yeah it takes yes. they could be in an environment where there's a little bit of moisture no corrode you know, think about all these cases that are sitting in case rooms across the country, across the world, really, that are sitting in rooms that that hasn't even dawned on somebody in some of these cities, maybe. And and so, you know, that that takes a tremendous amount of work by any one individual to sit down and start prioritizing this to make that happen. And I'll tell you something in my experience, to some extent. There's not a whole lot of priority on cold cases, really, unless that family is continually calling to get updates on that particular case. Well, so, there, there's a way to change that, Jason. You know, we could, if you want, you could speak to some people in your department and we could arrange it so every so often we have a podcast that's, that's specified towards a cold case, especially one where there's no, you know, relatives. From 68, I don't think that sharing information over a podcast is going to damage the uh, the ability to... You know, it might even help. You never know. Someone might listen to podcasts, hear one little thing, might turn it, might turn it around. You never know. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm big on sharing information on some of those old cases and, and getting it in front of the media and, and doing things like that. I, I, I will tell you for the, for the, for the people that are at home that are sitting there, they're going to listen. If they, if they're listening to this podcast and they're still to this point on the podcast where they're listening to right now, then you're going to get a really cool piece of information. And this is, this is what's coming your way. If you really are one of those people that is just fascinated by murder and you're just and you want to just read up on stuff and you want to just kind of sit back and, 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 and research stuff, go to the Iowa cold case website. This site is amazing. And I and I've been speaking for years on this to where I want to I would like to model the Tulsa Police Departments and the state of Oklahoma's for that matter to look just like Iowa's it's fantastic and it makes people want to research cases and the way they have it laid out is just phenomenal uh so so and it's super user-friendly I could spend hours if not days on this thing and it's in a state that I don't even live in yeah you know you, do, just, you know you just did to me right <laughs> I hope I hope I got you <laughs> you got to the me. point where you're gonna do it you're it's gonna a, check it out because it's fantastic it's already up on the other computer screen <laughs> good so no, it's great. And and when you go through that and you scroll through those pages and the, the same thing is, uh, uh, here's the thing. A lot of people, I don't know what it is, but if it doesn't affect them personally, then they kind of just forget about it. And, and, and all these cold cases, there are people that honestly, they might even think that these cases have been solved. Uh, literally, right. they, they, they're they like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that that case actually wasn't even solved. Uh and in some instances, it's just merely going back and just re-interviewing people. I mean, we just ran into this on a case literally this week. And it's just it's one of those things, just re-interviewing somebody, you'd be surprised at what you might learn after a few years of this case sitting cold. So, yeah, you know here's what? the problem. There, there's a couple things here. Well, let, uh, let's let's get back to the first 48. Um, the message conveyed with for the first 48, uh, to answer your question, while people have trust. Why would they bring a case to someone that's out of their jurisdiction? You did. You built a relationship with someone uh, via TV. 
the message is conveyed from that show is that in my town, we are doing it the highest caliber. We're going to work hard to solve this. So it's conveying a message to potential criminals. If you are going to commit an act out here, there's a strong possibility we're going to get you. It's also conveying a message to the public. Your community is safer because you have these type of people that are doing it at the highest level here. So that if you had more public outreach with law enforcement state to state, I've said this on a lot of other podcasts, uh, and you know who's really responsible is the community uh, figureheads. Like there's a lot of these people in communities that they're very quick to point fingers at law enforcement in judgment instead of organizing like a meet and greet or like a monthly thing where, you know, there's food, there's uh, there's music, and then the local law enforcement there, they're shaking hands. Because then the communication starts getting established, the bonds start to be formed, and trust is, is, is established as well. That's needed. That's a needed thing. On top of which... Cold case. So, Leslie, you're you're big in true crime, right? Yes. So this website he's talking about this Iowa State um, cold case. This is something I, you would read. Iowa in. cold cases. Yeah, I will. I have the link here. I'll share. I'll share it with Leslie. Okay, great. Like for you, in what you do, uh, you you've, obviously you've written a book about a homicide. The cold cases they appeal to you, yeah. Yes. Yes, because I think deep down most people would say they would like to see justice for the victim and the bad guy caught. So I think we all would like to see those cold cases resolved. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine uh, for you, is there a cold case for you, Leslie, that stands out that you would like to see resolve on? Oh gosh. I, I really haven't been, uh, uh, I haven't gone into that as far as seeing what cases are out there. I know there are quite a few amateur sleuths out there that um, have gotten their PI license and are interested. I think that came with um, some of the series that we've watched about um, crimes and, um, you know, it's it's drawn interest into people that they've actively gone out and tried to see if they can find something out. I think that's pretty cool. But me personally, no, when I, when I wrote that book that I did, it was a five-year venture and I didn't have time for anything else, but I, I am very interested in learning about the John Bidet Ramsey case. I remember when it happened, but I really don't know much about it. I think what we should do when we do the John Bidet Ramsey case, um, cause Jason brings a valid point. There's a lot of cases that we don't, we, you know, there's, they're not prioritized because they're not as, you know, high profile like John Bonet. You know, this is a little girl, beautiful little girl. She was a pageant queen. Um, there's a lot of cases that, that these people, they have really no family speaking out for them. They didn't really make the news. They deserve some kind of light. So perhaps we should dedicate a little time to like, you know, in, in the show, we'll talk about John Bonet or whatever case we speak of. And towards the tail end, we should we should cover a couple of cold cases and, you know, now, bring it to, I to have, public notice. I have noticed on uh, the LinkedIn social media site that there are people that are using that site to sort of spearhead a interest in maybe a loved one or a friend that never got justice and trying to make those connections within um, the law enforcement field or just reaching out to the social media community right. to try to get help 
I think it's great. I, I would love to know more about it. May I say, um, kind of off the subject, but uh, I had a question for you, Adam, about the Zodiac case. Um, when I was looking at it, um, there was a series, uh, just five segments, and they were talking about this team that they had put together a bunch of coders that had actually programmed an AI computer. Did you happen to see that? I did. Um, the problem with AI, as of right now, um, it's still being, the, the, the code and programming is still written by a human to to look for specific things, as opposed to it being uh an AI just being exposed to some data and, and see what it gets from it, right? It, it, the AI is trained to understand that we're looking at this specific topic. We have these specific details that we know. So AI is in a hyper focus on that as opposed to it taking the time to, and I don't know a lot about AI. I, I just know what I ask of people that know about AI. Uh, well, there was a, there were a couple things. I watched four of those episodes, four out of five. And, uh, they actually used the language that they had programmed this AI computer to think like a serial killer, which I found kind of creepy, actually. Um, and then at the very end, when they were talking about how it had helped them and how it hadn't helped them, I found it interesting. Like you said, it is fairly new. Um, and they were saying how, uh, there was when they came to a point in the cipher when it wasn't following the patterns that they thought it would normally be following in the cipher. The computer couldn't think outside of the box, so right. to speak. Right. You know, it couldn't really say, oh, this is an exception. It didn't know how to handle that information. But I, I don't know. There was something a little disconcerting to me to hear them say they were they were teaching the computer how to think like a serial killer. Yeah. And it's, I'm sure in the future, we're going to have AI at a point where it analyzes data and you don't have to give it uh, context. It will just take the data and render uh, its opinion on what it's, what it's seeing. Uh, till that time, it's, it's hard because what, again, in these shows where they're using their supercomputers to dissect these ciphers and, even that quote I had earlier about it saying about slaves and whatever, that's, that's AI at work. I'm worried. It's unclear to me how it would come to that conclusion. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it's still speculation. It's not, you, you can't take it to court. I'm, I'm, I, I really stand firmly in the, in the, in the phrase, can I take this to court? Cause if not, it's just hearsay. It's, it's just, it makes for fun television. You know, that's, that's the problem that we people. And there's a lot of people out there that because it was on a television show, they take that information as fact. And then you have these, these tribal divides of people of, uh, and could re that's where you could damage a case is that you're pointing the finger at this guy art, but it's predicated on something you saw on a television show that may or may not have uh, its facts, right. Versus the hard work of detectives who put the boots on the ground and they found this information through whatever sources they utilize. And so now you have two tribes of people and what ends up happening is you have a hung jury. You know, it, it, it makes it really tough. Um, before we close out, um, let's discuss this idea. Uh, Jason, Leslie, are you guys good with uh, covering John Bonet? Yes, I, I'm really interested. Okay. 
Yeah, I think it would be a fascinating case to touch upon for sure. All right. And at the tail end of that, Jason, I won't say for certain now, we'll, we'll cover it over the course of time, but um, maybe like a couple of cold cases that you want to highlight that you would want to speak of and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll educate ourselves to it. Uh, completely up to you. Yeah, I th- I don't have any issues with that. Uh, I-, I think that I would be interested in some cases that are, you know, I- I- I'm sure we can come up with something that would be really interesting. Yes. Okay, good. All right, so before I close out, uh, I'm going to say good day, good evening, good night to whoever's listening. I'm going to speak to Jason Leslie in post. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.